How are y'all doing today? Everyone good? Good afternoon. Y'all may have a seat. <clears throat> My name is Joey Ortiz. I am the student ministry director and youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church. And uh, I'm super excited to be here with you guys today. Now, many of you guys know me and have seen me up here by doing announcements or even uh, doing the welcome. Um, but unfortunately, right, like the Sunday context of Joey is not the Saturday, Monday through Saturday, Joey, right? You see me up here. I've got the nice buttoned up shirt. I've got the, the slacks on. Some of y'all are laughing because you know me. Yeah, you know where I'm going with this, right? You see me with the slacks on, the nice shoes. But if you truly know me, you know that's not me, right? Usually you will see me wearing a baseball hat. I love, love, love wearing hoodies and khaki shorts, not cargo shorts. I haven't hit that level of dad yet. I don't need them quite just yet. But my favorite article of clothing, one I am known even throughout the office with the youth group, it's these guys right here. <laughs> I love wearing chanclas. Now, if any of you guys have germ issues, right, these are brand new. I haven't worn them, so I'm not waving a dusty chancla around up here, just, just for context, right? But for me, the thing about chanclas is, is they are just so comfortable. They're easy to put on. You don't have to fight them. You don't have to tie them. They're easy to take off. Like, you don't have to do that thing where you're stepping on the back of your shoe to try to get your, your foot out. Right, And for me, my favorite part about these things is when I take them off. Usually for me, when I kick these things off, it's at the end of the day and I'm getting to spend time with my family. And it, it's a very enjoyable experience, especially when I'm not wearing them. Right now, for some of you guys, I am waving around something that is traumatizing to you, especially if you grew up in a Mexican household. <laughs> right, like if you've got a Mexican mama or an abuela back home, you knew that this was an instrument of judgment. And when the chancla came off, it was a very dangerous thing. You messed up and you were about to know how bad you messed up. Right? Whether it was the spanking or if you, maybe you had that grandma that just had that magic ability to throw these things around corners and it would follow you around until it got you. When a sandal came off, maybe for you, that might have been a bad thing. We've been walking through this series, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and today the scripture verses that we're actually diving into talk about a chancla and talk about what happens when it's removed. See, in the Israelite context, the sandal being removed was actually a sign of failure. It was a sign that somebody wasn't willing to uphold their duty for their family. What it meant was they were more worried about them. And we're going to see how in Scripture God uses this picture of a chancla being removed to not only seal a very important seal, but also to show us and point us to the wonders of the cross and what Jesus did on there. Once again, to remind you why we're here, we're walking through a series called Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Over the last few weeks, we have looked 
time and time again at different things in the Old Testament that pointed towards Jesus Christ. We opened up by talking about the seed, how the offspring of Eve would come and crush the serpent's head. We walked through the sacrifice of Isaac and how that pointed to Jesus being the sacrifice in our place. We walked through the serpent in the wilderness and last week the Passover and the Passover lamb. This week, we are going to be diving into a concept in the law called the kinsman redeemer. And we see this play out in Ruth chapter 4. But before we can dive into Ruth chapter 4, what we have to do is we have to give you the context, right? We have to go through Ruth 1, 2, and 3. Because just jumping into Ruth chapter 4 is like watching Endgame without everything else beforehand. It just doesn't make sense. Right, So we have to, sh to walk through and see what Ruth is all about, what's happened up to chapter 4 and why it is that we're talking about this. So let me do this. We're going to give you some context. We're going to walk through Ruth chapter 4, and then what we're going to do is see how all that points to Jesus Christ. Sound good? Awesome. All right, so context for Ruth chapter 4. We have a family, and it's a father, a mother, and two sons. Elimelech is the dad, Naomi is the mom, Kilian and Malin are the two sons, and they are in the middle of a famine. And because they're in the middle of a famine, they're searching for food for their family, so they move into this area called Moab. Now, the, the reason that's a big deal is because the Moabites, people who lived there, were very anti-Israel. They were actually the sworn enemies of Israel. They were pagan, they were wicked, and they just did not get along. And so Elimelech takes his family into Moab, and shortly after that, Elimelech dies. But Naomi's still okay, because she has Kilian and Malin, her two sons. She still has males to provide for her, really big in the culture at that time. And so Kilian and Malin find wives there in Moab, Killian marries Orpah, uh, Malin marries Ruth, and for 10 years, they live life. No kids. But 10 years later, we read that both sons pass away as well. And so now we have Ruth and Orpah, these two daughter-in-laws that are widows, and we have Naomi, who's a widow, and Naomi's like, I can't. I have to go back to where my family is so I can have someone provide for me. But you two being Moabites, that's a problem. People won't look at you with the same way they look at me. And it's just going to lead to more struggle. And so now we see Orpah, the older of the two, say, you know what? All right, cool. I'm going to hang back. See you guys later. And she stays in Moab. But Ruth says this, and I want you to check out what Ruth says in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you. Or return from following you. For where you go, Naomi, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me from you. Ruth's loyalty here to her mother-in-law, Naomi, is amazing. Context is key. It's super important. we got to note it again. This is a Moabite woman 
running to a culture that is wildly different from hers. Going to a place where she will be seen as an outsider. Yet, she says, your God will be my God and wherever you go, I will go. I care about my mother-in-law, her customs, and her traditions. And so her and Naomi go to Bethlehem. They return back to Naomi's home. That doesn't solve the problem, though. They still need food. And in Ruth chapter 2, we see that Ruth goes out to look for food. She's gleaning what's fallen on the floor from the fields. And as she's doing that, she meets a man. She meets a man named Boaz, and he makes provision for her. He says, go for it. Take what you need. And so she goes back, and she's excited, right? This is where the novella begins. She goes back to Naomi, and she's like, yo, I met this dude, and he provided for us. And she's like, what was his name? Well, it's Boaz. Dude, that's a family member. That's a Limelech's family member. He is our kinsman redeemer. So now they're super excited, and Ruth puts her faith in this man of honor, Boaz, who's supposed to be very well thought of within the community. She puts her faith there, and according to what we read in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, tons of texts that we're not going to walk through today, she approaches him to be their family's kinsman redeemer. Now, to, to, to kind of synthesize and break down what it is that we read in those two uh, chapters, Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, the kinsman redeemer has to follow four major things. One, he's got to be next of kin. He's got to be related. He's got to be a family member. And that's because of the clan structure, the tribe structure that Israel lived by. Two, he had to be willing and able to redeem. Willing to do it and also able to do it at the same time. He had to be free of any need of redemption himself. He should not have been in debt or needed to be redeemed. And then finally, redemption was completed when the price was fully paid. Redemption was completed when the price was fully paid. But after approaching Boaz, Boaz drops some bad news. He says, look, man, I'd love to. But it's the right way. You see, there's one person in front of me who can redeem you. He's got the first right. So we have to approach him and go about it that way. And that's where we pick up our story here in Ruth chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along or we'll have the verses behind me up on the screen. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 through 4 says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside at and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. The gate of the city where all of this is taking place is a busy place. It's a place of business and at the same time, busyness. There's a lot of coming and going and in and out. And people that were making deals and doing business were there. So Boaz goes and he sees this man, this redeemer, and he says, amigo, sit down right here. Interesting side note. In the original language, right where it says friend, that's our translation of it. But in Hebrew, a better translation is John Doe. A better translation is like Mr. So-and-so. They don't officially give him a name because his actions would bring shame upon his family. 
And being in the Bible, it's kind of a thing, and it's going to last a really long time. So they chose not to name him. Okay, so our amigo here, Mr. So-and-so, sits down. And then Boaz says, look, let me get some of the elders of this city to sit down and preside over this episode of deal or no that's about to go down here at the gate of the city. And so everyone sits down, and Boaz brings forth the deal. He says, here is the deal in verses 3 and 4. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And Mr. So-and-so says, I'll redeem it. He jumps at it. A piece of land for me and my family? Deal! I'm in. I'm all about it. He's about acquiring things to benefit from Naomi's and Ruth's misfortune. Shortly after that, though, Boaz continues with what's at stake. You see, he jumps in at the chance when he knows his family is going to benefit. But let's take a look at what happens in Ruth chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Then Boaz said, he continues, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. What would happen here in this custom is by purchasing the land, you redeem the land. By purchasing those that were married to the dead, you continue their family name. So in this case, what that means is in order to continue Elimelech's line, Mr. So-and-so would have to marry Ruth and provide children. Pay for the upbringing of those children. Pay for the continued taking care of the land. And then when he's of age, all of it goes back to that male heir of Elimelech's line. Let's see what happens, because I think that changes the deal. Verse 6 says this, The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. All of a sudden, we go from deal to no deal. His selfishness, his greed, his brokenness, all on display. The minute that it costs me and my family something, what I'm going to do is say, hard pass. Not for me. He knew what was right. He knew that he was supposed to be the one to step in and redeem the family. And yet, he did what was right in his own heart. Just like we see Judges 21, 25. We read there that there was no king ruling over Israel and that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. He cared more about himself than upholding God's law. Quick side note, isn't that us? Isn't that us? We know right from wrong. We know what God's called us to do. Scripture says he wrote his law on our heart, and yet how many times do we look at what we're supposed to do and justify it with selfish reasons? I'm supposed to be out there helping and serving and loving God's people. Nah, but I'm tired. 
you got to pray for your enemies. But if you really knew what they did to me, bro, you wouldn't pray for them either. You got to read God's word. You got to devote yourself to seeking after him daily. And as you're scrolling Facebook, you're like, nah, homie, I'm kind of busy. That's us. We look at God's law just like Mr. So-and-so did, and we pass because it's inconvenient. Getting back to our story, though, thank God for a man like Boaz, who's upstanding, who has a man, he's a man of character, and wants to do things the right way. And so what he ends up doing is he ends up stepping in where Mr. So-and-so backs out. He presented him with the first right of refusal, and Mr. So-and-so said no. So Boaz steps in. Now, this is the part we talked about a little bit earlier, right? Now we get to the chancla, what you guys are waiting for, why this is important. Ruth chapter 4, verse 7 says this. Now, this was custom in former times Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he, Mr. So-and-so, drew off his sandal. He said, I am unwilling to do what I need to do for my family. I am unwilling to uphold my part in this woman, her daughter-in-law, and their land. So I'm going to give you the right to stand on what's mine. That's what the, sam the sandal symbolizes. The ability to stand in his place for redeeming this family. And check out what happens next. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, get this picture. You have two men sitting down. You've got ten men sitting in front of them. And as people are passing by in this place of busyness, they, they, they're metiches, so they stuck around, right? And they're there listening to see what's going down in this transaction. And while they're there, this deal happens, and Boaz tells them, you are witnesses this day from the hand of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malin. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and continue his line, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. See, the passing of the sandal to Boaz for Ruth and Naomi and the land, that's a big, big deal. It wasn't just some random day in the middle of the year, right? Like all of happened, and because of it, they get married. And then shortly after that, they have a child whose name is Obed. We can continue to read through this, and, and, and you can do that whenever you have a chance. But Obed was pretty important because Obed was the father of a guy by the name of Jesse. Jesse was the father of a guy by the name of David, King David. See, this deal actually continued the line that brings us Jesus. And if you know anything about Scripture, you know that's a huge, huge deal. So Boaz stepped in to be their kinsman redeemer. As we start to wrap up our service today, I want to bring back those four characteristics of the kinsman redeemer that we talked about earlier. He had to be near of kin. Boaz was. 
He must be willing and able to redeem. Boaz was. He must be free of calamity and need of redemption himself. In that case, Boaz was as well. And redemption was completed when the price was completely paid. Now, as we have walked through these, we look forward to how Jesus is our greater Boaz. Or we will look forward to that. You see, these four characteristics were also fulfilled by Christ. And because we're looking forward to that, let's see how Boaz was a foreshadow of our true Redeemer, Jesus. Point number one, he had to be near of kin. Ephesians 1 says this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, if we take a look at scripture, through Christ we are adopted into the family of God. Through Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. And what's amazing here is Jesus even says the very same thing. Mark chapter 3, he's, he's out and he's doing ministry and people come to him and they're like, dude, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And Jesus goes, dude, who are my mother and brothers? Seriously, who are they? And Jesus being Jesus answers the question that he posed. He said, my mother and brothers are those who go and do the will of my father. Those who go and do the will of my Father. And if your heart has been changed, you are adopted into the family of Jesus and you are living out God's will. Was Jesus our next of kin? Absolutely. We are adopted into his family. Some of us might say that Jesus is our brother from another mother. Like three people thought that was funny. Okay, never mind. It landed in the second service, not here. It's cool. The next characteristic that we have to look at is, was he willing and able to redeem? If we take a look at John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we see that not only was he willing, but he was absolutely able. For this reason, he loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He lays it down of his own accord, out of an act of obedience to God the Father. We see the same language echoed in another part of Scripture, and, and Paul does a really good job of fleshing this out there. So let's just, it's not going to come up on the screen, just bear with me, follow along. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 say this, Have in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that language of obedience is a language of choice. Jesus chose 
to follow the will of the Father. Again, time and time in Scripture, Jesus says, I'm not here to do my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. When he was on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was crucified, he laid down his life saying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. His laying down his life was an act of obedience that shows he was more than willing. But he also had to be able. Let's see if Jesus was able. Romans 5, 18 and 19 say this. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification of all men and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. See, the reason that Jesus was able to completely centers on the very next point that we're going to look at. But before we get there, we see one, was he willing and able? Check. Two, was he next of kin? Check. So far, he's crossed off two. The next one, was he able to redeem us? Yes. Was he free of calamity and need of redemption himself? Absolutely. Because he was completely sinless. We see this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Is without sin. He was tempted and yet was without sin sin let us draw with confidence then to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need jesus was totally sinless i love what first peter says as well first peter 2 22 he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly those first two verses that we just read are huge i want you to get this picture peter here is quoting from the book of isaiah that's that's pointing to jesus's suffering on the cross and as jesus was getting beaten as he was being mocked and shamed as jesus was being spit on did he do what we would do where we kind of try to buck up and get mad and fight back no while he was going through that, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He didn't talk back. He didn't threaten. He just trusted himself to God. These last two verses that we're going to read from 1 Peter actually point us to our last point. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Was he in need of redemption? Absolutely not. He checks that box off. Was he willing and able to? The answer is absolutely check. Was he next of kin? Check. The final point for Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer is that redemption was completed when the price was completely paid. And as we look at scripture, we see that Jesus paid it all. I love what Hebrews 9 says. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, 
even though the good, uh, I'm sorry, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, uh, by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. I want to pause because there's three words there that are huge. See, for us to understand that Jesus paid it all, this isn't like an ongoing thing, right? Jesus isn't getting re-sacrificed every week. Jesus went to the cross to pay for the sins of those who believe once and for all. Once and for all. And it's not just your current sin, it's not just your past sin, it's past, present, and future. So when we sit here and say, Jesus paid it all, it's because by the shedding of his blood, he brings to you eternal salvation. We read that in that, the end of that same verse. By the means of his own blood, thus securing us an eternal redemption. Jesus paid it all. Does that answer the last question? Absolutely. Check. And you see, as we close our sermon today, I want you to get that picture. I want you to meditate on that idea. Jesus' body had broken. His blood had to be shed so that he could be our redeemer. Right? Our redemption was purchased through him, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. When he was presented with the opportunity to redeem his people, Jesus didn't take off his sandal. He didn't pass it to somebody else and say, here, man, you got it. I can't handle this. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to endanger my inheritance. No, what Jesus did was Jesus took on the wrath of God. The punishment for sin that was due to you and you and you and you and everybody who lives on planet Earth. And if we come to God through him by the breaking of his body and by the shedding of his blood, we are redeemed by our greater redeemer. And that's Jesus Christ. As we wrap up and move into a time for communion, I want you guys again to just meditate on that and prepare your hearts to receive that as we remember what Jesus did. Pray with me, y'all. Father, we come before you once again to thank you. To thank you for your word and truth. I pray, Father, that as we move into this time of communion, Lord, that you be with us, guide us, give us wisdom, give us peace. Father, help us to dwell on and remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. That by the breaking of his body and shedding of his blood, we have been adopted into your family. Lord, redeemed and restored back to you. We have been made your children, Father. And I pray that as we move into this time of reflection and meditation, Lord, that you, you just help us to completely rest in the finished work of what your son Jesus did. Lord, I pray that you 
guide us and, and give us wisdom this week and help us to live for you and do all things for your good and your glory. Father, we love you, we worship you, we praise you, we thank you for every blessing that you pour out, including the life, death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Love you, church.